you know how when something remarkable or bizarre happens, we kind of expect to see a lot of coverage about it in the media, you know, and actually the media is criticized a lot of the time for taking a small, small incident and blowing it up into a huge story. So we expect to see a lot of coverage, especially about things that are unbelievable or shocking or remarkable or that never happened. Yeah, and this is what we're going to talk about with our guest today. Jan and Peter are two seasoned and award-winning journalists, and they're going to tell us about their experience in trying to report on the experimental Dutch protocol for puberty blockers. They're going to speak about how the the rise in the number of young girls seeking transition, which we've mentioned so many times on on our podcast, and the way that the language has radically transformed around gender identity. And they followed it, and they tried to bring this story to the media. And like Jan is a, like, you know, a seasoned journalist. Peter is a, is a very academic sociologist. And yet they came up against unbelievable roadblocks and concerted efforts to keep th- their story, which there were just a bit of criticism of the Dutch model. They were really, really shut down. And so we discuss how the Dutch are very proud to be pioneers in social experiments. However, this pride seems to have led to a certain conformity of thought among the Dutch society Mm -hmm. and definitely resistance to criticism. Yeah. So for context, you know, the Dutch protocol is important because when you look at what's happening right now with kids who have gender dysphoria or are struggling with their bodies, it has become pretty commonplace to hear about puberty blockers as like the standard go-to intervention. It's often referred to as a pause button or a chance for families to think and see what's going to happen. Um, And this protocol of blocking a kid's puberty to help them perhaps later transition was started in the Netherlands. This was kind of an unheard of concept before the early 20, around 2008, 2007. So this all started there in the Netherlands. And it's often referred to as the kind of gold standard for how pediatric gender transition should look. And even like 20 years ago, the concept, the even phrase, trans kid it didn't exist nobody would have known if you had said trans kid somebody would have said sorry what and that concept was created by these dutch clinic clinicians who decided to pause children's puberty because they believed that they had an ability to choose among children which were the children going to remain gender dysphoric and therefore would end up being transsexual therefore would thank them later for keeping their aesthetic and it seems to be very driven yeah. on that basis, like basically stopping boys from having an Adam's apple and the jawbone and the and the shoulders. Yeah. And from that, from that stopping of puberty, the concept of the trans kid arrived. And now we've once we've got that concept, the world has just settled into the, the idea that there are mm-hmm. trans kids out there. Yeah. And as Peter and Yan kind of described to us, they, they each had their own reasons for becoming curious about this. Uh, Yan had always been interested in in language, and he was writing a column uh, about contemporary political language. And it was about all kinds of things. Many, many issues were discussed. And as you'll hear, out of 50 articles he had written, only seven were about gender. But those seven articles were uh, put under a tremendous amount of editorial scrutiny. And as Peter and Yan described, the pieces that they ended up collaborating on and writings as they started to talk about gender transition in the media um, just received an unbelievable amount of scrutiny. And they even described having to cite a source for every single sentence that they made. So uh, I'll tell you a little bit about their backgrounds. Uh, Yan 
uh, Kitten Brower. I hope I'm pronouncing Very his good. name well. Has been in journalism since the 1970s. Um, he was a columnist and he's written books and he's really interested in social and cultural trends and how kind of tech plays a role in these things. And like I said, language. And he worked uh, as a reporter for national weekly magazines and large newspapers. And, you know, in his 40 years of working, he said he never really had a hard time getting published. I mean, he was considered kind of a topic expert on some of these things. He wrote award-winning columns and he's published 20 books. So this is a guy who was a very, very well-respected journalist. And when he started to investigate gender, he started to come against these roadblocks, as we've the said. Wall. And Peter Vosterman, yeah, the big, the big gender yeah. wall. I mean, we know that wall well. We do. And Peter Vosterman is a sociologist. He obtained his PhD in 2004 from the University of Amsterdam. And his dissertation was called Media Hype. So interestingly, he was always curious about the way the media can kind of blow up stories. Huh. And he wrote a book called something like From Media Hypes to Twitter Storms, yeah, that's something right. along those yeah. lines. Yeah, which we'll include all of these in the notes. So the, he had this interesting background. And as he describes, he found himself in the middle of one of these unbelievable Twitter storms after he started publishing on gender. Yeah, these two are really, they're, they're very seasoned in the in the larger sense of the word. And then they stumbled into gender. And when, when you know, it was Jan who wrote to me, he said, in 45 years of journalism, I've never come across this. And they, they have an element yeah. of being stunned by what they're sitting on yes. and the, the, the feeling of we can't quite believe this has happened in our own doorstep in Holland and how, how awful it yeah. seems to be. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very sad story because I think the Dutch are brilliant. I really do. I think it's a great society. And yet there's no doubt about it that the, the Dutch protocol has created something that has had an absolute huge ripple effect and thousands and thousands of children's people's lives. And it, it all really began in the Dutch clinic. Yeah. So I think with that, we will leave you to listen to our conversation with Jan and Peter about their investigations into the Dutch protocol and about the way the media silence has played a role in kind of propagating this this strategy and this, this medical intervention. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi there, Stella, Peter, and Jan. It's so nice to have you all here. Hi. Hello. You're very welcome. Um, we, we, we have been following the Dutch, the work of the Dutch clinics for, for some time. And it, it is uh, an extraordinary model of treatment. And I suppose in many ways, it's, it's kind of famous in our world, Sasha. So it's great to get people mm -hmm. who are going to give us a wider cultural perspective, because um, we've got a sociologist and a journalist to talk about the Dutch model this time. <laughs> Yeah, maybe you can start with explaining. Before we got on this call, we were discussing how uh, the Dutch are often pioneers of very progressive policies that they proudly 
can stake the claim of like, we did this first, we are willing to try these very kind of humanitarian and progressive social systems and various practices. So that would be an interesting place to start. Um, Mm -hmm. Yan, do you want to start us off? What are some ideas around there that are important for the audience to understand? I was what came to my, my mind when you were saying this just now. Um, I know I don't know if you've ever seen the drama series The Wire, uh, play mm-hmm. in Baltimore. There's yes. this famous episode called Hamster Dam, where a hmm. rogue police uh, commissioner does a secret experiment by liberalizing the drug traffic in one certain area of town. Uh, he's found this idea in Amsterdam, but and he hasn't told the mayor, and it's all going, of course, in the end, it's all going uh, terribly wrong. But they had this little uh, experiment, and the, the drug users and the dealers, uh, the, their topographical knowledge is limited, so they speak of Amsterdam, uh, because <laughs> they... Uh, and, and so this is a simple example of how the Dutch have actively developed and also exported social and political policies uh, because, well, they, you know, we have this term Gidsland, which means guiding nation, and we say that of ourselves. Uh, it's, 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 it's over its high point, I think. I think that was in the 80s, 90s, maybe early. So we're, we're getting a little bit more modest in that <laughs> respect. But we've always, with abortion, euthanasia, mm-hmm. med- medical, ethical issues are really at the forefront of the Dutch social political innovation. And I think the gay marriage. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gay marriage. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, I, when I was growing up, it was like. Not a medical thing, but. Yeah, but, but kind of social experiment, kind of leading pioneers of social experiment. So this phrase, which I had never heard before, the guiding nation, Hitland. Or, or whatever you say there. I think it's very interesting because when I was growing up, I used to hear about, oh my God, Amsterdam and, you know, how that, uh, you know, hash was decriminalized and mm-hmm. prostitution was decriminalized. And it was like, I, I grew up thinking it was the most forward, progressive thinking nation in the world mm-hmm. that, you know, the Dutch mm-hmm. do it right. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it feels like the puberty blockers experiment falls in with these ideas or falls in with these experimental kind of attitudes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, the whole history of the Amsterdam Gender Clinic falls into that uh, tradition really? and in, in, into that vein. Yes. It's, um, you know, it has a Christian. That's the remarkable thing is that this hospital used to be a Protestant Christian hospital, Mm. university hospital. It's the Protestant University of the Netherlands. You know, we have uh, religious denominations in in our education system. And so this was the Protestant uh, university. Um, And many people are surprised that there, that this was where this whole trans medicine was developed. And mm-hmm. um, about um, uh, Louis Horen, one of the founders of this clinic, he traveled all over the world and and mm-hmm. uh, 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 preached and advocated this 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 new line of medicine. And this and the basis of it was because uh, 
um, <clears throat> you know, it's on the one hand, it's really very nonconformist and 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 uh, controversial, and on the, on the other hand, there's here's this traditional Christian clinic. But Horan always said, no, it's all a matter of naaste liefde. Uh, what's the word for that in English? Uh, of brotherly love. Sorry, I, I read a lot of interviews with him, and uh, the word compassion came back compassion. a lot of times. Mm. Yes. Compassion. Compassion yeah. with people who need help, who are in distress, and uh, they offered a new approach to, uh, to help these uh, young people. Yeah. So I want to point out that that's like an example of how the, the language, the framing, the co conception of these interventions plays such an important role in how the public understands them, how medical professionals understand them. And of course, both of you have big roles to play in the media and writing. But Peter, as a, as a media sociologist, can you can you talk a little bit about how does that that was like the way it was initially framed as this compassionate, loving thing to do? Can you talk a little bit about how that has evolved and how that's relevant to what you guys have both discovered in your investigations? Yes, I was looking back at media coverage uh, over the past 20, 25 years from, let's say, 1995. And you see that there was only one moment in history where there was a debate about uh, the puberty blockers and the new approach. And that was in 1999. It lasted only a very short period. There was criticism uh, from politicians, from uh, uh, a professor in uh, medical ethics. And it was just gone in a few weeks. Uh, also because the the VU clinic uh, uh, responded very emotionally in the sense that mm. they were saying, well, we are not Frankensteins. We are trying to help these people in in distress and you don't have any idea what we are doing here. So after a few weeks, this, this whole uh, argument was settled in favor of uh, the new approach. And in the years after that, so let's say from 1999 until let's say 2020, uh, we have only mm -hmm. seen in the newspaper only very positive, favorable, uh, almost PR uh, articles promoting uh, the Dutch approach and the whole uh, treatment with puberty blockers. And uh, I was reading all these news, news reports, about, about 120 from all these newspapers. And what struck me was that the same elements kept coming back all the time. It was always almost a repetition of the same points. Uh, it's, it's, it's reversible. It helps people to think about. It's, 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 it's a pause. It's, mm. uh, 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 they all know for sure that they want this. Uh, we have a very careful selection of, uh, of patients, uh, and we take a lot of time to, uh, to analyze, to assess, etc. And all these elements uh, come back. They are very happy. Afterwards, uh, it's a lot of success. And also the idea of something that we have to be proud of in Holland also comes back. It's a unique, unique mm -hmm. approach. The whole world is watching how we are doing it. And it's a sort of export uh, product from, mm -hmm. uh, from the Netherlands. And that is something that for 20 years, this is the main media coverage of uh, the topic in the Dutch media. When the Kira Bell case came up and the Tavistock uh, debate in to end, end of 2020 and the beginning of 21, then you see that two Christian newspapers in Holland, uh, they uh, begin publishing articles on Tavistock, uh, but not the regular 
the the larger newspapers or the larger uh, public broadcasting organizations they still do not report on what was happening in England in England and that was the reason for me to write this opinion article in uh, May of 21 that I thought well why is nothing happening why is no one writing about this that was a very <laughs> it was a, a sort of surprise to me because What I wanted was to analyze media coverage, but there was no media coverage on this topic. That was my my uh, my main surprise at the moment, at that moment. Uh, I just want to think, Michael Biggs talked of a film in 1996 about, uh, yes. that, that was quite critical. So that must have come and gone as a kind of a small little niche event, I, I would I would wonder. Is that how that was received? Was, no. But was that critical, that film? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what I. That's certainly the impression I got from Michael Biggs. Mm. No, this this was, was never from? mentioned anywhere. This uh, yeah, this program. Okay. No, no, then, no so it all was... starts. It all starts with uh, Cara Bell and the Tavistock Clinic. So at the beginning of twenty one, then you see the first articles, but they are mainly about uh, about Great Britain, not about uh, the Netherlands. No one asked. Uh, well, what is yeah, happening well, in Holland actually? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So that's 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 strange that you look back and you see that all these newspapers and all these journalists uh, keep reporting what uh, the clinic in Amsterdam is saying. Uh, they also have a lot of human interest stories about mainly young people who go in transition. There was also a very famous Dutch TV program on public broadcasting, which was called He is a She. And they follow in these in these programs, in these series, they follow young people who go in transition, also young people starting 11, 12 years old. And it's all human interest. There's no, never any question about, is this a good approach? Uh, what, what, uh, what about these public blockers? Is that a good idea? What are the risks? Mm -hmm. These mm -hmm. questions were never asked. They have two, there are two poster girls, I guess you should say. Uh, of this clinic and of this treatment. Uh, they are well-known TV personalities. One is called Nikki and the other is called Valentine. And they are models of this Dutch protocol treatment. They started on purity blockers very early. And Peggy Cohen-Kettenis, who is one of the inventors of the Dutch protocol, we might get to speak about her later, uh, one of the, well, the original uh, inventor, Uh, never fails to mention them and to point them out to us uh, as very um, successful examples of, and and it, it that for me always um, confirms my impression that there was a very aesthetic on her part a very aesthetic uh, motivation. Because she keeps pointing out that uh, they have turned out so convincingly as they can pass so easily as women, because there's no Adam's apple, there's no deep voice, etc., etc. So, uh, and these two women, uh, trans women, um, you know, they uh, everybody loves them. They're national treasures in a in a way, Dutch progressive national treasures, and. So they're part of this culture and this 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 silent agreement, in which is very strong in Dutch culture, that it's 
um, it's very, in Holland it's very hard to um, to speak out against innovation because innovation is by definition good um, we um, vernieuwing we say uh, and you know if you're against vernieuwing then I mean you, you I think it's uh, it, it's better to confess to tax evasion or child molesting than to, to publicly <laughs> say that you're, that you're old-fashioned in Holland. That's a really mm. big taboo. You cannot be old-fashioned. That's the worst thing you can be almost in this country. Okay. So people are very afraid of stepping mm. on the brakes and saying, oh, wait a minute. And if they do, because some people do, of course, and some people are extremely conservative, mm -hmm. uh, then almost automatically they are labeled and uh, ridiculed in a way too um, and that is because in our the, the Dutch culture is pretty unique because we have what we call uh, I've tried to teach this when I was a, a teacher in America and um, there's no word there there's no English language for it but we have like we call it I translated it in the end as the column system, the Zuilen system. We have a, our society is built of columns where all these different originally usually religious denominations that are living together in this country but are that are in disagreement on many things uh, live in these silos, in these isolated silos and have learned to co to peacefully coexist. Uh, and to negotiate the social policy. And um, that has uh, created some kind of uh, trepidation in speaking out against uh, ethical and levensbeschouwelijk, uh, uh, what's the word, um, um, ideological things mm. really so what we uh, because we have this consensus to 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 guard all the time and this 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 fragile balance between all these different uh, denominations and therefore we are very reluctant to to and uh, uh, so the consensus is we have to move forward we have to be progressive we have to innovate and the people that lag behind are always laughed at a little bit you know mm. so that to, to add something Jan it also leads to uh, conformism within the <laughs> call exactly. you, you, they, they tend to follow the, the group they are um, they are belonging to and stepping out of this group is very difficult yes so mm. uh, yes a lot to, of com conformism to translate that Conform. to the uh, transgender issue as soon as you say something critical about transgenders then you are more or less stepping out of the column you are a non-conformist and that's not uh, that's not acceptable yeah and there's there's a lot of um you know um in the dutch history uh, we are we are a country below sea level so we've always fought against the water and if you fight against the water then you have to be able to count on each other in crucial in critical moments so there's this enormous uh, uh, force towards consensus and and non-intervention 
and uh, tolerance, uh, and and also with and, and delegating your views to the leader of the silo because he or she they are negotiating the social contract with the other silos. You know, mm. so that's so so that leads to a paradox in the Dutch culture where on the one hand we are extremely progressive we think mm -hmm. but on the other mm -hmm. hand we are also extremely conformist mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. is and that is what you're seeing here as well so just to, to make sure i understand as, as an american listener and maybe some other viewers will be thinking about this too i mean the the netherlands is such a small country and you're talking about this water concept which i think is interesting because you're saying like we've historically had this existential natural threat And so it mm -hmm. creates like deep, deep in the way we interact with one another, this need to stay as a cohesive group. Mm -hmm. And that's very different from like the way we tend to conceptualize things here, which is there's always a battle. There's always a debate. Yeah. There's always place mm -hmm. for yes. disagreement. And, and it's different yes. there. So you're describing an entire culture that has a forward thinking, progressive trajectory and not a lot of place for dissent. Is that right? Exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's that's right. If you look at the media uh, and what I said about the media coverage over the past 25 years, you see that, one, let's say, one master frame is dominating the whole media coverage. And it's all a sort of conformism. There's no not mm. one reporter who uh, steps out of the this bubble and uh, tries to uh, ask uh, critical questions or... Uh, look into data, look into what happens within the clinics. It's all mm. more of the same. And this has been criticized often uh, regarding Dutch media that uh, the, the, this overall frame is much too strong and that all the media are more or less within the same ideological okay. field uh, with only a few exceptions. Could I ask, is there universal the kind of satisfaction, not universal, but pretty much universal because of this conformist and kind of laughing at people if they don't agree is the, the quickest way to get conformity, you know what I mean, than, than any other way. Mm -hmm. But am I right in thinking mm -hmm. that the, pretty much the Dutch are very satisfied with themselves about their prostitution laws, their their cannabis laws, their mm. euthanasia, their, they, there was a, they were abortion tourist capital for, for decades in the 60s yeah. and 70s. And yeah. all, mm -hmm. all those, they're very pleased with all of those. Well, things are changing slightly because originally... Um, it was there were there were these little there's these little pockets of conservatism, religious conservatism in Holland. Uh, there's an area we we have our own Bible Belt, so to speak, <laughs> and uh, they they are called the Black Stocking Churches. So they are really strict. They go to church three times on Sunday, etc. And they, they, no television is allowed, etc. So there's they still exist. But they were always um, ignored, largely, mm -hmm. uh, and tolerated too. Because, for instance, there's a political party in Holland that still doesn't allow women to be a member. Uh, wow. Yes, uh, it's 2023. Uh, mm. So, uh, you know, but they are tolerated because... They are in their little silo. They're in their little mm. harmless pocket column, <laughs> uh, column. Mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. uh, uh, so we 
let them. Okay. Uh, and we don't take them very seriously. But in recent years, of course, we've seen this development of the new right, so to speak, where uh, your alt-right uh, movement, uh, there's, there's all kinds, um, uh, Nigel Farage, for instance, and we have Wilders, and they are conservative as well. But they don't want to be silenced and, and, and uh, ignored. They are very vocal, vocal. Mm -hmm. and aggressive. So that, and, and they've, they've, they've widened the margins of debate, uh, clearly. Uh, 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, Peter and I wouldn't, wouldn't even have been able to publish these things that we've been publishing. Um, so, you know, there's a bit of, there's more room for dissent growing, but unfortunately that's, that's dominated very much by very right-wing conservative forces that uh, have their own agenda uh, to be against, for instance, transsexuality and, and transgenderism. So, and, and I, I consider myself a social democrat, I've always voted to the left of the center, so has Peter. Uh, so left-thinking people uh, with their qualms and their doubts about this whole gender thing, they have a hard time because they, are, they get lumped in very easily, almost automatically, with the ultra-conservative right. And that's, that's the cross that Peter and I are bearing right now because uh, just like this, all the time, only today there was a letter in NSA Handelsblatt of somebody uh, calling us uh, ultra-conservative, etc. So, you know... That's the problem. And, and, and I want to add to that, and maybe both of you can touch on this. You know, in, in our communication beforehand, Ian, you, you mentioned that in your background, you had a mother who was a really strong feminist. And she said, you said, like, she made sure her five sons didn't grow up to be male chauvinists. She taught us how to cook, to clean, to sew, and not to be afraid of our feminine side. So, like, you had that background, and you started reading about gender issues, um, much much before the the trans boom so to speak yeah, yeah and so you said like from that background that's why this was particularly so strange to me i'm 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 wondering peter do you have a similar experience where you came from this liberal minded background but something about this movement didn't feel progressive and liberal to you yes i come from a let's say a left wing uh uh, background. I studied sociology in the wild years of uh, occupations <laughs> in, of the universities. If you look behind me in the in the book uh, uh, closet, you'll see still uh, Das Kapital, uh, the capitals in three parts from three volumes from uh, from Karl Marx. We read it all in the, in in German, uh, but we also. Uh, uh, we also learned a lot about uh, feminism in the first years of my sociology study, feminism, Black Panthers, racism, uh, all these uh, topics came uh, came by. And if you translate that to, to, the, uh, to the transgender issue, then you have to make, a, suddenly you have to make a sort of ideological move. Because in my opinion, before that, this was part of the package, uh, homosexuality, uh, progressive, uh, this this should be able to be done. These people should be helped, etc. But if you really look into it, you see a sort of cleavage uh, in your ideological uh, field, because this is, a, this is a whole new area that is different from the left liberal uh, 
uh, ideology that I was uh, more or less a part of. So you have to step out of that. Yeah. You have to step out of that mm. bubble to uh, to see new things. That and I, mm. in the beginning I was very much afraid of reading stuff because I thought, oh, these are all right wing Christian uh, ultra conservative uh, writers, and do I have to read this? Uh, I I didn't trust them at all in the beginning. Mm. Even mm-hmm. when I when I read uh, Jesse Single, I thought, well, who is he that he's writing this uh, this stuff? Uh, but you have to make a sort of step out of your bubble and discover that this is a whole new uh, issue. And that is very difficult for a lot of people. Did you two meet yeah. each other and kind of like kind of dis- d- discuss it, you know, I mean, discuss it together, kind of learn together? Or did you kind of collide later when you both knew knew it? Could you give us a little outline of how you of how you discovered the, the issues in the Dutch clinic just a quick outline just for for the listeners yeah i think we okay. ran into each other halfway he was uh, working uh, and, and publishing on peter on the subject and i was and uh, so then our paths crossed i'd known i i knew him by name and i think we'd met before um oh, yes. Uh, um, most certainly, I mean, in Jer- Dutch, Dutch is a small, uh, Holland is a small country, and if you work in journalism, um, so th- that happened. What do you think? I think about a year ago, and um, of course, then. Uh, so I contacted Peter, and I uh, said, uh, I told him that I'd read his original piece about the lack of media coverage and that I was now completely understanding what he was saying and that I was writing these columns myself and reading up on the whole trans movement. Um, And then he said to me, well, actually, I'm working on a new piece, a book review of three books of Mm -hmm. Kathleen Stock and Helen Joyce and uh, Deborah Saul, three books about uh, trans, about gender. And uh, it's going to be, uh, and they're critical books. I'd read them myself by that time. So, uh, and it's going to come out, I don't know, next week or in two weeks or something. And then, so I said, well, that's going to be very interesting. Uh, can I read the piece? And are they, are you sure? I remember saying to Peter, are you sure they're going to print it? <laughs> <laughs> ah, no, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Somehow I sense. I thought that would be a serious breakthrough. Are they going to do it? Well, if they've, if they've uh, commissioned us, committed to yeah. it, and commissioned it, by, they, there's hardly any way back. So they're going to have to publish it. And if not, it's going to be a big stink. And it, the latter happened, of course. Yeah. Okay. Now, actually, it was an offer by me uh, sent to the uh, to the chief uh-huh. of the uh, books uh, section. And, uh, well, I knew after the uh, first article that there was a lot of debate within the news desk about uh, publishing this opinion article, which was, uh, let's say, evaluated by some journalists within the newspaper as really transphobic and a shame that this was uh, published. So I knew there was a lot of division, a lot of debate going on. But I just made a proposal uh, for the chief of the books and he said, well, that's okay. That sounds very interesting. Write, write a story. You get 1,200, 1,500, uh, even 1,800 words. Uh, so the whole summer I was reading these books and by August I had it ready. I sent it in. He said, it was, it's a great story. We love to have it. And it was lying there on the desk for two weeks. 
and a few days before it was should be printed uh, another editor another journalist uh, from the book section read it and he said it to someone else and within a, a weekend uh, there was a real uh, row going on at, uh, at the news desk yeah. and the end was that they uh, that they decided decided to cancel it completely without giving me a chance to rewrite or, or to to give a revision or whatever and it was just the end of it had anything like that ever happened to you before no no in my whole career uh, of let's say 40 years of publishing this never happened no no not for this reason actually actually on friday afternoon uh, one editor was sending me some remarks some questions could you do this could you do that and mm-hmm. um, a, a uh, an hour later she emailed me and said well Let's wait because uh, there is someone else who's reading it now, and uh, there are more questions. And I said to my wife, "Well, this is the end of the story, probably." Mm. And this turned out to be true. Wow! Yeah. I, it, it goes for me as well that that I've never been cancelled, so to speak. Uh, You're nobody over, if you haven't been cancelled. Uh, <laughs> 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 yes, actually, that, it felt it felt like I was relevant. I'm cancelled. I want you to buy a T-shirt, uh, but but no, because you know, and that's this same this same uh, subject. I mean, I've been in journalism for forty five years. I've had conflicts uh, politically, more or less, all and uh, before and then too. Uh, on more or less the same theme in a different situation, different context, but this, the basic theme is the same. Um, so that is really, that is maybe, maybe that's my Achilles heel, but it's, I think it's the Achilles heel or the, the really touchy area in, in, in journalism and in the Dutch culture. At the time, the first time I, I, that, that ended less dramatically, but, um, uh, it was similar. Um, the The government had decided to uh, abolish the film classification system, the film curing. So it used to be that films were rated by a board, a uh, film board, and given certain oh, ages, yeah. as you you know this system, the system all over the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, then the neoliberal uh, spirit uh, moved the government to decide to liberalize, to, to privatize that. And they privatized it and they let studios and broadcasters uh, rate the movies themselves. So then mm. you get, uh, you get uh, uh, the butcher that's, that's uh, certifying his own meat. And mm-hmm, you got, mm-hmm. and there was this, this influx of, um, there were movies that were rated R or 18 in, in uh, elsewhere in the world were were uh, rated zero in Holland and in the video stores, etc. So yeah, really crazy, totally crazy. Wow. But this is a typically Dutch phenomenon because yes, you cannot be progressive and liberal enough in this country, and it's very very uh, risky. To, to speak up against it. And this is what I did in the Volkskrant. I wrote a whole series of articles about how this 
this liberalization of the film curling of the, of the had gone awry and had 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 ended in 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 in, in, a, in a free for all really, mm. where uh, Lolita by Stanley Kubrick based on the book was in the video stores for uh, all ages uh, and stuff like that. And I had made these long lists. I had made these comparisons of all these ages all over the world of these movies. And it turned out that Holland was really oh, 30, 50% lower uh, on, on almost anything. So then, uh, and in a way that's the same theme because then too, the problem was you're, we're supposed to be progressive and we're supposed to support all this and you're a spoiled sport. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress, Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the conversation. Yeah, and what I what I think about that is when you remove these boundaries and you try to liberalize everything, the most vulnerable groups are really the ones that end up getting hurt. Like that in the example my, you're talking about, the children watching the this movie with these uh, very adult-like themes they're not capable. Like it's a safeguarding issue at that point. And the Absolutely. same thing happened with puberty blockers. It's like treating a child as though they have the same capacity for understanding and consent as an adult. And that was that was my motivation. I thought it is that this is a a left uh, politically leftish motivation because you're uh, you're abandoning uh, you're 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 taking away. Uh, 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 instruments from parents, young p- parents, and and uh, th- that have um, you know that use the video recorder as a babysit. Oh yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. these kids can now put everything into that machine and watch them. I I struck. I I came upon that subject because my five year old daughter asked me what fellatio was. Oh wow! And I I said what? Yeah, it's in this movie I'm watching. Oh my god! I said excuse mm. me. Uh, mm. So that that's not supposed to be uh, all mm. ages, yeah. you know. So um, that was my motivation. But of course, it was easily framed as being right-wing, conservative, and old-fashioned. There you go again, old-fashioned. Yeah. And that is really, a, that's, that's a, a capital sin in, the, in Holland. It's almost like the way transphobia yeah. is used to th- stop people from thinking through a topic. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like yeah. in the Netherlands, yeah. you that, say you're old-fashioned and it stops somebody from thinking. Yeah, it's more that, that was the main, yeah. the main response to my uh, first article uh, was a sort of Twitter storm uh, that lasted a few weeks in which the word transphobic uh, came by uh, millions of times. And that was really a, yeah, a sort of surprise or a shock to me also. Uh, as I uh, have written before, I 
studied a lot of uh, Twitter storms uh, as part of my media hype research. And now I was in the middle of it, which is uh, actually uh, quite a new experience because for days and days you see these all these Twitter messages going by, coming by, uh, attacking you, uh, uh, offend, oh, uh, offending you. Um, mm. There was even one former colleague who said he was very ashamed that he had ever worked with me and all kinds of messages like that. So that was a real <laughs> surprise for me. On the other hand, there, was all, there were also a lot of uh, uh, positive responses and there were also emails from uh, worried parents who uh, were very glad that finally this topic was in the media. And so we had we, we kept contact with them. Uh, but to have a sort of storm three, four weeks uh, it's incredible over one opinion piece. It's it's. I was really uh, well uh, and to go, surprised to, and shocked. To go back to your question to Peter earlier, uh, have you ever experienced anything like this before? When the recent piece about the Dutch protocol was finally published, I wrote two columns in the other the platform I do the weekly column uh, about how this piece came about. And uh, I couldn't tell the whole story in one column, so it had to be a two-piece. Um, and uh, uh, I'm losing my train of thought here now. Um, oh, yes. And I said the, 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 the lead was this is the... I've been in journalism for 45 years, and this is the hardest-fought publication ever in my journalistic career. And it's exactly the same goes for Peter. Um, mm. At a certain point, we were completely amazed that there could be so much uh, resistance and so much um, Distrust. Un unreasonable and unfair and silly, re hypocritical resistance yeah. even, uh, to... To a piece that, well, the same goes to the Peter's book review, and now this. Uh, so at a certain point, we said to each other, by God, um, we are really going to get this published in a national uh, newspaper in Holland, no matter <laughs> what. Because the resistance alone uh, uh, proves how necessary it is, and we're going to try to break that resistance. And in the end, we, <laughs> we succeeded. How long did it take you to get it uh, published? Months. Wow. Uh, four months. Well, right, yeah. yeah. Writing and publishing and, 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 and negotiating, editing, shortening, because it was way longer. And then uh, lo another shortening after a while. It, it was crazy. Wow. And then at a certain point, we had a, a different paper, smaller paper that has more room for essays interested and we thought well they are not as influential as NSA Hansblad but they will give us room so maybe we should choose for that and we did and we started negotiations with them and then at one point this editor called us and said wait we had provided I think 38 uh, sources and notes and, and hyperlinks to all kinds of sources and documents. And she had found one tiny... Oh, yeah. I've been there. Uh, uh, <laughs> tiny, yeah. In one of these... Really tiny, mm. in one of these sources. And she said, 
Well, now I can't trust that piece <laughs> anymore. Eh? Of course. Wow. Uh, I, we said what? So I, I it, it was. I, well, actually, actually, it wasn't even a mistake. The point yeah, is, I made a ref reference to a source. The numbers from the uh, Amsterdam uh, clinic are also very confusing. They use all kinds of different data with different definitions. Yeah. So it was a hell of a job to just find out what the right number was. And, mm. the, and, it was, was, and it wasn't the crucial number either. It was completely ridiculous. I compared it to, you know, you, you refuse a piece because somebody wrote Rotterdam with one T wow. uh, mm. at, at one point. And you say, well, if, if you write Rotterdam with, with only one T, then, of course, this story can no longer be Your trusted. Your 45 years of journalism are negated. <laughs> well, suddenly, suddenly uh, she was talking to us. This, this was very striking. Uh, first, you know, she was very uh, uh, cooperative and, and, and interested. And, um, well, I wouldn't say, uh, well, she was polite. Uh, and then, all of a sudden, the tone changed, mm -hmm. and we we felt like we we were uh, like two grifters trying to sell her uh, uh, a miracle mattress uh, that would cure all her uh, rheumatism or something, you know. So, or or maybe uh, people that sell encyclopedias on the door <laughs> at the door. Well, they don't exist anymore. But anyway, like yeah. a shady tradesman. Uh, trying to ha hack, hawk some, mm. some faulty oil. goods on her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, but, snake but, oil. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Crazy. But the, the, the point is that, that these articles we have written, they all had uh, 30 or 40 or footnotes, uh, sources and links. Uh, uh, because in, in the first article I wrote, uh, I kept there were still common questions from uh, from the editor do you have a source for this do you have a source for that where does this number come from so what mm. i did also in all these pieces was uh, let's say in each sentence there was a source yeah and actually that was too much mm. yeah. and the level of the level of journalistic scrutiny is is totally unparalleled i at a certain point i said to peter if nsa handelsblad or any paper uh, scrutinizes a uh, copy this way, all copy this way, they should have a thousand f fact checkers on their payroll. Yeah. Because it's simply impossible to, to, to work like that. And, uh, but this was, I guess, just some kind of hackling tactic to uh, discourage us or, you know, and also for them, for the other side. Well, I, mean, the, the, I think they, they are they afraid. They want to be safe, of course. Yeah, yeah they want to yeah. be safe. They are afraid for criticism. Yeah from uh, the other party yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and then of course so our piece on the dutch protocol two weeks ago could could only be published in conjunction with a, a very lengthy response by the clinic itself mm, it had yes. to be printed alongside of it uh, they waited for that for weeks so uh, uh and we said well why can't you just run the piece and let them respond at a later point or interview, let us interview them about the criticism. Um, and that piece could have done with, well, let's say 10% of the uh, editorial scrutiny that mm -hmm. our piece was subjected to because it was a total piece. It was completely a vacuous fluff and PR uh, language. 
they interviewed Steensma for that piece, and you said, disappointingly, Steensma said there's actually nothing to worry about. The girls in the yeah, clinic the, now, all these yeah. ROGD girls, have the same exact gender dysphoria and are totally appropriate for treatment. Nothing to see here. So, yeah, that that the, yeah, yeah that, that was that was a, a really a shock at that at that moment. That was the first article in twenty twenty one. The 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 trigger for writing this article were exactly the statements made by Steinsma in another interview. Exactly. Where he said, we have these yes. new girls, we don't know where they are coming from, and I we know. even don't know if the research we, that we've done is still uh, applicable, applicable, is still yeah. useful for this new group. So that was my trigger to write this article, because no one else uh, uh, picked that up. And, uh, well, the, the article was in the newspaper, they immediately sent a reporter the same day to uh, interview Steensma. And uh, uh, I know the reporter, and he, he called me and he said, well, he's, he's denying everything. And that's exactly what happened. So in this newspaper, uh, in this interview, Steensma said, uh, there's nothing to worry about. It's the same group. They have the same kind of gender dysphoria. Uh, the only thing we don't know is where all the girls are coming from. That was the interview. There are two qu- there's, and I thought, yeah. well, that, that's a bit of a... A, a bluff. That's, that's a bit of a... Yeah. A, there's two questions that I'm I'm really, really keen to ask you. Um, there's both of you. One is there's a very big, strong theory that we're always being hit over the head with, which is that uh, the Dutch do it right. And, you know, the Americans ran with this model and they applied everything badly. And then the American model went went everywhere. And I know your your articles, your writing is kind of suggesting maybe the Dutch didn't do it so well. And I'd love your opinions on that, if you don't mind. And then there's another question I have after that. Well, there's well, there's this... several stories uh, of, of of accounts of witnesses of patients that have been in that clinic that seem to indicate that they're being very cavalier there as well. Um, and, but of course, these are always isolated cases of in, individual cases, so uh, they are easily easily dismissed as anecdotal, which is what they always do. What they do continuously. Uh, everything that they that that doesn't match the 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 frame is called anecdotal. And uh, I always think, yeah, but but when, how many anecdotes do you need to have before something is really like a, mm. a more like a structural phenomenon? Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's hard. It's hard to determine this. Well, I think there are two other points important here. One is that when uh, American journalists or British journalists write a story about this, they phone Anne-Lou de Vries, they phone uh, <laughs> Steensma, and they explain that they are very careful and that uh, they have very uh, intensive assessment of these children. But there is not one reporter who is actually doing research in the Netherlands, what happens in the clinics, what happens in the these therapies, in the assessments. They always uh, reduce it to the statement by the Vries. But the Vries will always say that they are doing a good good job. So yeah. that's that's how, that's how media so works. So the clinicians identify yeah. as there's, great there's clinicians. No. The, the, the New York Times reporter yeah. uh, uh, has a phone call with uh, with De Vries. Uh, the people from Reuters had one, and they yeah they they 
uh, they can get away with these uh, statements because there's, no there's one no, is actually doing well, that, research. That links yeah. to my yeah there's, to my second question. Do you, there's no investigative reporting, yeah. and they will not no. allow it because the whole no. our NSA piece was really the result of uh, our decision was more or less forced because we asked for an interview with Steins mm. three months ago. And could I could I ask this the second question because it's kind of very relevant to what you're saying there about Steins and DeVries is do you think because I'm very keen to know because you've really studied the Dutch more on the ground more than anybody um, do, do you think the clinics what looks like almost purposeful obfuscation of facts and purposeful kind of you know changing scales and numbers and it, it looks really purposeful or is it messy and sloppy well it's a very good question uh, just the other day there was uh Yilis smiths a dutch medical eth- ethicist pointed mm. out in nsa um in a small letter in reaction to the reaction of the gender clinic <laughs> to our piece uh, that they had they quote their own research, but they quote the study bef- uh, two years prior to the final study in which the conclusions were almost diametrically reversed. So they, a- after two years, they came to a different conclusion, a conclusion that didn't fit their, mm-hmm. their uh, frame at this point. Mm-hmm. So they're quoting the 2020 study. Uh, that is not an oversight. Oh my God. That cannot be an oversight because it's their own. It's, it's their own stuff. Uh, so th- I, I thought that was pretty suspicious, really. And, you know, the whole... Uh, they're being so secretive. Uh, Peter, at this point, mm-hmm. uh, as you may... Uh, you, you spoke to uh, um, Biggs. Sorry, Michael, I forget his first Michael name. Biggs. Um, Michael. Michael Biggs. Michael Biggs. <laughs> uh, he... Uh, asked uh, Anna Ludefries is now embarking on a big research project. She got a big grant for it, 800,000 euros, five-year study to find, as we, as she wrote herself, the missing evidence base of the Dutch protocol treatment. So there you have it. We, when I read that, I thought, my God, she's just saying it herself. There's no evidence oh my base, God. apparently. So now she's going to look for it. Uh, she got this huge grant for it, and she, of course, she submitted a research proposal, and Biggs uh, asked for this proposal, and he didn't get it. So he went to the judge, the WOP, as we call it in Dutch, that's the law of... of, of uh, pub, uh, Information public, Act. Mm-hmm. Information Act, mm-hmm. Tri- mm-hmm. exactly. So, which, which forces pe- the government to uh, reveal to publish certain data. And uh, then he got the proposal uh, and it was pages and pages of complete black. There was only two, uh, two, or, three, two or three lines to be read. Not redacted. Oh. All, ev- almost everything was redacted. And so he appealed this decision. He appealed this decision and the session was the other day and he asked Peter to represent him in Den Haag, so maybe Peter should finish this story, uh, to get this information published after all. Mm-hmm. And everybody is wondering, 
why is this research proposal secret? Mm-hmm. What's, you, mm-hmm. you, you have the patient data of 8,000 patients and you're going to... Uh, there's a couple of details that were not redacted that, that clearly indicate that the purpose of the investigation is to to work towards a new uh, level of informed consent, to 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 uh, lean more towards informed consent in future practice. So that's one element, and there's a lot of talk about cooperation with the patients mm-hmm. and the parents. Um, but exactly the details are they are behind this black wall of redaction. Mm-hmm. Peter, can it's, you add anything crazy. else to that? And then we'll we'll have to kind of come to our last few moments here. Peter, is there anything else you can share on top of what Jan said? Well, I, 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 let's say Anneloo de Vries was also invited for this hearing, but she didn't show up, so mm. there was no chance to meet her, unfortunately. Uh, there were a lot of lawyers uh, from uh, the Dutch uh, Research Council, Scientific Council, and they explained that the main reason to uh, redact all this uh, this whole proposal was for uh, uh, competition, to prevent that competitors would use this uh, proposal to do their own research. And, uh, well, as we said, uh, in the proposal itself, uh, there's a line that's, that says... Uh, the Amsterdam clinic is the only clinic in the whole world that can do this research because we have uh, a database of 8,000 uh, uh, patients over the past 20, 25 years. So there is no other clinic that possibly could do this research. And, uh, well, I, I mentioned that several times. Um, mm-hmm. The response so from the There's no competition well. argument there. But Stella, to go, to go back to yeah. your question, so that these details, these moments like this letter and then quoting the wrong uh, research mm. now this this proposal being redacted um you know it all does suggest that they are being extremely secret yes well there's another element or another point that needs to be mentioned that is that they have not published any data about uh, patients, Where about uh, sex ratio, about how many uh, children are being treated by with pu- puberty blockers. Uh, we have no, do- no data after 2018, except for the number of how many referrals they have. That's about 350 each year. But that's all we have. And uh, that's, that's also, that makes it very difficult to get a good picture of uh, what is happening within the clinics because we don't know how many children there are. We don't know how many children are getting Mm -hmm. puberty blockers. Mm -hmm. We don't know how many children are going to do something else. Uh, Basically, we know nothing except for the scientific publications that they did uh, in the period until 2018. Yeah. I just want to fi- I want to ask just one question before we finish. And I know the Dutch model. One of my major flaws with the many major flaws of the Dutch model is their utter absorption and focus on the aesthetic. And if the aesthetic works, it's very much they're interested in the look of it rather than the function. Yeah, yeah. But um, mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. just as journalists and psych- sociologists, Ferens Pharmaceuticals, the fact that they sponsored the the is this a very important fact or not because I wouldn't know I'm not a journalist I don't know how what, the thing the, is oh I better is, tell uh, listeners Farings Pharmaceutical are are you know they they sell puberty blockers and they sponsored the 
they sponsored the research. The original research. And uh, the fact that all over the world, our piece is now being quoted as revealing that Faring Pharmaceuticals was the sponsor of this original. Well, it's just a byline already in the original publication. We don't reveal anything. Uh, this was public information. But uh, nobody really took notice at the time. But if you look at it in, in hindsight, you think, well, that's very interesting because that means that uh, there was actually a force involved uh, promoting the use of this, this, the new use of this already existing uh, uh, pharmaceutical product. So, um, uh, you read it in the article as well, at least that's my interpretation of it. You know, when you negotiate about a text and somebody, for instance, in politics with reports, there's damning information and they want to, they can't mm -hmm. leave it out but they want to sort of, you know, obfuscate it or hide it or maybe put in other information that draws more attention. If you read this article closely, you see on the one hand, they say no side effects. And then later on, more or less wrapped up in a couple of different sentences, there's an admission that there is a possibility of side effect. So I think this was a negotiation between the sponsor okay. And then their own scientific uh, 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 conscience, you know. Yeah. Can I return to one point <laughs> you mentioned uh, earlier? That is the the point that uh, that uh, it seems that the Dutch are doing better than the American oh, yeah. uh, gender clinics. At that point, and I think well, it, it's uh, there's one important point that is that the whole Dutch protocol was built on the idea that these children that would get puberty blockers were uh, gender non-conforming from uh, early yeah. age on. And uh, that's one of the criteria they just left because they get a lot of children now who are much older and who do not have uh, a real history of uh, gender dysphoria. That was actually one of the points mentioned in the research that uh, Jan just mentioned, the new research by Steensma uh, from uh, 2022. Uh, where they really uh, divide two groups and one group has non, uh, not really a history of uh, gender non-conformism. Uh, so I think they were forced by the whole new group to leave uh, the criteria behind of the Dutch protocol. And so that's for me, that's a, that is a proof that they are not actually working f according to the criteria they once uh, introduced, uh, let's say, 20, 20 years ago. When we interviewed them and we did our post-series analysis, something that came up was that it feels like they are chasing whatever the current kind of popular idea is around this thing. So what you're saying there, Peter, is that they're willing to change their inclusion criteria as the population itself changes. Yeah. And I think that is That's a similar true. phenomenon. Like they're going with the flow, yeah. so to speak, yeah. and torturing the data, torturing the procedures in order to make it fit the current population. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's what that's what Levine that's exactly. calls runaway diffusion. And that's, that's, that's right. This seems to be a classical example of runaway diffusion where, uh, you know, and so in a way, I mean, they are not to be uh, envied at all. I mean, they are in a mm. terrible pickle. 
They've been doing this for 30 years now almost. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden there's all this scrutiny. Yeah. And now, now so I think with themselves that's sinking, slowly sinking in. My God, what have we done? We, we have corrupted this protocol step by step and we've compromised and, 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 and uh, 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 what's the word, widened it in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, now people are taking notice and there's, there's going to be a moment that they're going to have to own up to all this. And that is, of course, I, I would be scared to death if I were. Oh, and I gather, I so gather what, they are. What, what, I gather because I've spoken to detransitioners mm-hmm. who've gone into them and they sound like they're rattled in the Steensman, DeVries and the clinic. They're rattled. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the, and, the, mm-hmm. and the, 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 the poetic tragedy of it is, and the t- very Dutch poetic tragedy is that this whole, tra- this whole uh, clinic with this original idea of compassion and love and, and tolerance uh, to help these people with this awful uh, torture mm-hmm. condition. Um, and the Dutch attitude of you, cannot, you can never say anything about this and you will really have to be very tolerant and very uh, uh, supporting and understanding. This has almost automatically, almost telescopically uh, mm-hmm. extended itself towards this whole woke movement that we see now in the last 10-15 years that is more or less a modern extension of the same ethic and the same attitude That's right. whereas That's right. you cannot speak about this you cannot question it you cannot and they so they were on this gliding this very smooth transition from the original uh, spirit of the clinic into this new woke ethic, and they thought it's it's all it's a it's runaway train. It, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's and it's mm-hmm. it's it's, it's, it's uh, smooth sailing from now on because yeah. this new ethic is supporting our uh, our corruption in a way, <laughs> our our li- our uh, devolution of 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 the of the protocol. Hmm. But still, I think uh, it could work into a sort of tipping point. I've started a lot of scandals and what you see is that at a certain moment, things are going to change and then the change will go very fast. And within Mm -hmm. months, people who were heroes uh, are suddenly the scapegoat of a scandal. And well, I I still think this could happen with this um, issue also. Yeah. We've seen it evolve and change very, very rapidly over the last, I would say, five years. And I think, I think it's, I think yeah. it's definitely possible. Mm-hmm. Well, I think now is probably a place to, to end, though we could definitely talk much longer. It was lovely to have you both on. We really appreciate your expertise. And we'll be sure to link the articles that we've referenced in this conversation and all of the kind of ways to contact and find you guys online. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah. To thank participate you. in a 1% top 
podcast. I was a show off to put that on Twitter. World, worldwide. <laughs> That's quite maybe something. we'll be maybe we'll be even higher when people hear this conversation. Everybody's quoting the fuck at me. I'm mortified. Well, Stella, thank you yeah. for telling the world that we're top one percent. We'll keep it going. Yeah. All right. Thank there. you, Jan. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. By all means. By all means, too. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender: A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.